0: Hi everyone, it's Sophia and welcome back to Work in Progress. Here's a question for you. Is it possible to be an emotional badass? If you're not sure, I have an answer for you in the form of today's guest, Esther Perel is a best-selling author and psychotherapist who is widely renowned for her insights on modern relationships. She's a multiple-time TED Talk host and author who speaks to the emotional needs of modern people and the intricacies and expectations of romantic relationships. Aside from her work in the field of psychology, which landed her on Oprah's Super Soul list of 100 visionaries, Esther is just a super fascinating person. She's a book writer. She's fluent in nine different languages. She runs her own therapy practice. She produces and hosts two podcasts. And most recently, she's added game designer as the newest of many, many feathers in her cap. And I can say from personal experience, she is one of the most fascinating people I have ever sat down to dinner with. I'm so looking forward to learning about her perspective on relationships and talking self-actualization and bringing you all into the fold to get to know Esther better. There's a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Well, I'm excited to to jump in with you today, um, and and bring our listeners into your world, and to talk about you know your practice, your books, uh, the the podcast, the game. I mean, you have so much going on. But before we get into what's happening now, um, and I think so many of the things that you have to illuminate for us, I I'd like to kind of go back because I wonder when these things began to illuminate for you i i wonder who was esther this woman who we all know as a a leader on mental health and relationships and you know who gives phenomenal ted talks who who was this woman when she was a young girl it's interesting you ask me this question now because i actually just went
1: on vacation and one of my friends who joined me knows me since i'm age 6 and people oh. always ask her, how was she in school? How was she when you, you know, when you knew her as a kid, like, is there a straight line, you know, is there a continuity? Um, And the answer is yes. You know, mm-hmm. in many ways, people will, you know, she answers, she says, back then she spoke her mind. Back then she didn't just say what other people say. And she, she always kind of stood out with some different uh, idea. And it's very interesting for me to listen and see her and others um, make this kind of comments. When I say others, we had a reunion after 42 years of uh, of my class, and wow. uh, and I basically said, "How did you see me? How was I at that?" I mean, I'm often asked exactly the question you're asking. You all knew me then.
0: Mm.
1: I was a leader. I was controversial i <laughs> I had my defenders and my uh, and and the people who didn't necessarily you know particularly connect with me or like me. Um, and I was always interested in people and in relationships and in the human suffering and in the human spirit that helps mm-hmm. it survive the suffering and revive. So I think there is actually real consistency and continuity. In in personality
0: style and in interests, mm, I love that. It's funny. Some of the ways you describe yourself as a kid, I have that reaction in in me where I, my insides are going, me too, me too. I felt so much of uh, so much of that, you know, curiosity and and a and a desire to understand the things that often I think people want to hide. Mm-hmm. You know, the vulnerability and and the tension, I, I I always was wondering like where where does that come from? What causes that? And I I wonder for you, you know, I think we can all draw parallels to, well, my family did this or I experienced that, but I wonder for you, you know, I've read that both of your parents were Holocaust survivors, and growing up in the beginnings of, you know, the Cold War in Western Europe, I I wonder if those very raw human experiences and tensions and, and perspectives um, perhaps made you want to understand, you know, those, those are quite complex moments in human history to, to be intaking as a child.
1: I think every, every, I can tell it about me, but I don't, but I, It's not unique. I mean, I think there are many other people who may ask, how did we get to this country? Why am I born here? It's pure accident.
0: Mm. What is this
1: number on your arm? Um, How come I have no grandparents, no uncles, Mm. no aunts, no cousins? Why don't we have any family? Why do you have such an accent? Why did you never go to school? Mm. Um, So I think many children who come from different circumstances in life where wars, refugee experiences, decimation of communities are part of their DNA. It's not just Mm -hmm. their background. It's really part of the way that they absorb the world. So those questions were present for me from very early on. And it wasn't just my family, it was my whole community. That's kind of Mm. all I knew—is people who had gone through these kinds of experiences. So you very quickly get a sense that bad things happen in the world. (laughs) You don't have there's a certain naivete as a child. You don't have. Mm. You have nightmares. You have fears. You have a sense that everything could change overnight. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that I'm part of the people who have lived with that, which is a way of saying that I'm part of the people that have experienced early early trauma, even if mine was vicarious in some way. Mm -hmm. I'm the child of, but it came with osmosis rather than, you know, I was not myself in a concentration camp, but everything was absorbed in that way. So intergenerational transmission of trauma, direct exposure to traumatic events, create a certain experience of reality of the world we live in of the safety or the lack thereof that I think many of us have in common.
0: And I imagine that analyzing that experience in your own family's history makes witnessing, you know, what's presently happening in the world feel very real, feel very personal, you know. I think it's hard for any of us whose families have versions of these stories to look at people experiencing it now and think, oh, well, that's happening somewhere else. I would
1: say it in an even more provocative way. You know, when you're a kid and you've seen terrible things happen to your people, you say, how is it that the world allowed for this to happen? How could they mm-hmm. continue to go to parties and to gatherings and dinners while all of this suffering and horror was taking place? And mm-hmm. then you realize that that's exactly what you do too. You may worry, you may read about Afghanistan, you may read about the earthquake in Haiti, but basically your life goes on. You may get involved, you may send things, you may may call on your politicians, but fundamentally your life goes on. And to be on the receiving side of that, and that's not the first time, you really get a sense that this is how it goes. You know, one place Mm. can fall apart while another place is continuing to live as if nothing was happening. Or they kind of know something's happening, but that's it. Whereas Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I couldn't imagine that people could have sat idle Mm. while, you know, people were being gassed. And, you know, people are sitting not idle, but people are witnessing from afar while people are jumping on a plane to try to, you know, (laughs) what were they thinking? It's like you know that the plane would stop and take them inside, or or because they're not going to fly on a wing. I mean, it is beyond. There are no words to express these things. It's really. So Mm -hmm. I think I can just barely begin to address what what that juxtaposition holds.
0: Mm -hmm. Something that helped me make sense of that was actually a a a poem, and I've I've talked about it on the show before. There's a, a writer, Jack Gilbert and he wrote this poem called A Brief for the Defense, which essentially posits that that there is suffering happening everywhere and joy, and that sometimes the suffering ones are the ones who are also laughing, and that we couldn't make it as people if we didn't hold on to our joy, that it is the one thing that we can't live without. And it it reminds me that we have to stand up for other people, but we also have to make sure that when we have it good, we take it and we're grateful for it because otherwise you kind of dishonor the people who've lost that opportunity. And so I, I don't know, I think Not that- Not
1: eating because other people are hungry mm-hmm. isn't going to make them eat more.
0: Right. It isn't It isn't actually helping. How, how can you put your own oxygen mask on first and then put the oxygen mask on the person next to you? And I- I think there's a, you know, learning that has to be done there, and an experience that has to happen, and you know, faith we have to lean into, and and I wonder, you know, when we when we bring it back from this sort of large experience of so many people who've experienced generational trauma or or been through something, lived as refugees, been through something like your family went through, where in your perception and intelligence and uh, knowledge about psychotherapy and all of this, where where does faith come in? Was that a part of your family tradition or was practicing Judaism not, not something that you leaned into? That is such an interesting question.
1: My parents came from very religious backgrounds, mm-hmm. ultra-religious backgrounds for that matter. And after the war, they went basically to live in a little town where there were no other Jews. That's long before I was born. Mm. And my father explained to me that he wanted to get away from it all. And he was kind of angry with God Mm. that he had lost his entire family, hundreds of them, that he was the sole survivor of his entire clan. So was my mother. And, uh, and so, and faith, you know, faith had really helped him while he was in the concentration camps and he prayed and he did the holidays and he even fasted on Yom Kippur inside the camp where, you know, mm-hmm. five years of fasting altogether. But when he came out and he had a choice, he had a few years, a good few years where he just, um, there was a crisis for him. Mm-hmm. And so it changed as he got older And that was its relationship to God, but not the relationship to the Jewish tradition and to the practices. Those stayed. My parents did them throughout their entire life and they imparted it on us. And the notion was, you should know who you are, where you come from and where you go. And it is when you are really anchored into a specific identity that it will open up for you the possibility of relating to everybody else that it is not what closes you it's what actually allows you if you know your name you're going to ask other people's names
0: that's beautiful did did you just look up to your parents immensely when you were a kid i definitely
1: always ask myself would i like i think there is not a child of parents who have gone through such situations that doesn't ask what would i have done would I have been able to survive this? How would I have done this? I mean, in that sense, yes, they were um, they were heroes. And they also were storytellers and the way that they told about their lives before the war, during the war, and when they came and were refugees in Belgium, they told it from a heroic standpoint rather than from the victimization standpoint. It was stories of how they braved, how they managed, how they connived, how they beat Mm. the system, how they survived, how they stole potatoes on a farm. You know, it was, it was heroic stories. So it was easy as a child. It's easier to listen to heroic stories than stories of victimization. And because they were good storytellers and people used to love to come and listen to them. These people, you know, they were, they stood out. They were the only Jews in the neighborhood with one other family. And they had, they they stood out like the the Mm -hmm. shop of the foreign family, you know, uh, the one with the accents. And so people would often come to the store and stay and listen to them talk for hours. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they were different. They, that's what I mean by this to Dao. They were different. I knew I was different. And I was never embarrassed, actually, or very rarely. I was usually on the side of
0: they are unique. Mm. Mm. I love that. And I think about the way that you make space and create containers for other people's stories. And so to learn even as your friend, to learn in this moment that you grew up in a very unique container of stories. Do, do you think that that connection, your childhood connection to stories and, and the tendency of kids to also love games, do, and we're going to get into a game later, do, mm-hmm. do you think that that really shaped you in your, in your formative years? Did that begin to make you want to study psychology, to, to look at therapy as, as a career? So interesting. So I think that there were a few connecting
1: dots. First, it's like it was clear my parents have a story, mm. A kind of this awesome you know, story. And they also were very curious about other people's stories. So I learned that. I learned to not be afraid to ask questions, to be curious about people, to ask them really, who are you? Where you come from? What, what have you gone through? you know, where did you learn that? You know, all of this. Then mm. I would say what began to make me interested in psychology was not just the stories. It was also relationships between people and what can be shared and what is not shared. Like, for example, because my parents were so into the heroic side and so much into the, we, you know, we we, we appreciate life so much because we are here. There was a bit of a prohibition on sadness. There was a Mm. bit of a, you know, nothing is bad enough. So as a kid, that's not an easy thing because whatever boo-boo you have, you think, you know, what, how does that compare with what they've gone through? Mm -hmm. So I didn't necessarily go to talk to my parents much about my boo-boos. And so then I began to think, you know, where does one turn and how does that affect relationships and all of that? And I got interested in stories my, much of my child play was story play. I mm-hmm. created universes with stories. I actually wrote a whole blog about that, how I had one whole story that I played in front of my mother's mirror in her bedroom where I ran a hit parade of songs. And I, I was the singer, the jury, the composer, the audience. I played every role. You know, I was into acting play, play acting mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and other games like this. So I was very interested in plots, Mm. How people interact with others, who is involved, who is rejected, who is included, who ends up leading all of these systemic interpersonal things was part of how I played and what I began to be interested in as a teenager. And then it was an obvious thing that I would be interested in psychology. I mean, i but I thought psychology was mental health. It was mood. Mood disorders, personalities, and particularly the relationships between people. And that's kind of where I honed in.
0: So when did that study begin? And and when when do you think you knew you wanted this to be your life's work? I would say around 15, 16. Wow. You know, early
1: on. I it started by reading books about education. I was reading mm-hmm books about, you know, because I was in a very repressive school system and I just couldn't believe that there was not a different way of relating to children. And so I read all these books, uh, education, alternative education books. There was a big book at the time in the seventies called Free Children of Summerhill. And it was the beginnings of open education where you actually ask the child what they are interested in. You know, I came mm-hmm. from a culture where the opinion of the kids didn't matter much. Certainly not in my school, you know. And the, the, the child at all didn't matter much. The material mattered, you know, Latin, mm. Greek, <laughs> you know. <still. laughs> so I, I started my interest by reading about children and mm. the relationship to children and alternative ways to raise children. That's where it began for me.
0: That's so interesting. and it Because I hated I, my school. <laughs> but that makes sense. And it's funny because you know, it it reminds me of a conversation you and I had before the pandemic. And we were talking about, you know, how people relate and the stories we're told and especially gendered stories that we grow up with when we're young and how dangerous those can be. You know, Uh, when a young girl gets hit by a boy on the playground and and an adult says, it means he likes you. It's, you know, it's the beginning of culturing women to think that abuse is romantic. Mm -hmm. And you were talking to me I can't remember where you said it happens. In the, I don't know if it was the Netherlands or or somewhere, but you spoke about how there is a a school of thought and a practice that begins the notion of sex education as consent education, as an awareness of others at the age of four mm-hmm. with kids, where they learn not to hit and to ask for a hug and to respect other people's bodies and space and and how every couple of years there's more information about really how to just be kind and inclusive of others so that by the time these kids get to, you know, 12 and 14 and 16 and actual conversations about intimacy, sex education, consent are happening, it's not a foreign topic. And I just thought, why don't we do that everywhere? So where does that happen? And and when do you think, So when did that start? It was the Netherlands, you know. It was so the, the Netherlands, okay. The interesting thing
1: is to talk about stories. And I say, you know, relationships are stories and stories mm-hmm. are the bridge to connection and relationships. I remember learning from my parents to listen to the stories of people and to see the stories as entrances in, into a whole world. So it is very much how I, I think, I think therapeutically that we in narratives, I work with the narratives of people. So I'm very much about stories. It's just one approach. There are many other ways to be a therapist. And I think that when you do early sexual sexuality education, which in Holland is called sexuality and relationship education, mm.
0: it's not
1: sex education. So that it instantly tells you that sexuality is part of a story, the story of relationships, all kinds of relationships, but it is part of a story. It comes with a plot. It isn't just some, you know, reflex. Mm -hmm. It, It has meaning is what that means. It has meaning. Stories have meaning. They have a plot and they have meaning. And What they do is they start at age four. Now at age four you don't do sex education. You talk about how, you know, sometimes there are people that you like, and you like when they put their hand on your face because it's your uncle or your you know or your cousin or your friend or your or the classmate to whom you want to hold hand because there is a warmth that you feel you you know. And then other people you don't like when they do that. You know, they squeeze that cheek and you just kind of want to say, eh, you know. Mm and so you know that you learn to know the distinction that there are certain people that you like. You like to play with them more. You like to be with them more. You, ex- mm. you convey, first of all, the, the experience of closeness, care, mm-hmm. connection. Mm-hmm. And then from there, that becomes later on a more eroticized attraction, sensual You know, you like Mm. to sit next to them. You like to sleep in the same bed with your girlfriend, you know, and you don't think about sex an iota, but you know, you're comfortable next to her and others. You Mm. don't want to be sharing the same bed with her when you are on a sleepover, for example. And all of that gradually leads to when you have those feelings of closeness and connection and attraction and ease and comfort it sometimes also then gets infused with more sexual feelings. Mm. This is how this gets woven in. So as a result, one of the very interesting findings is when they interview the boys that are part of this educational system, it is not at all a story of raging hormones when they are teenagers. Mm -hmm. It's a story of they connect with a certain person and they want to express that, and it includes sexual feelings and sexual behaviors as part of, how they are drawn to that person, rather than just an out-of-control, outer-body experience of raging hormones that mm-hmm. you know they can't do anything about but must act.
0: Yes, because the idea that there's oh raging hormones and boys will be boys, that's also a story. That's a and story. And it's actually a very dangerous story, not only for us, but for those boys. It's, it's bad for everyone.
1: I, it's a story. It's a frame. And it mm. gets, you know, and like every good frame, it gets reinforced. Mm. You know, it, it it gets it reinforces itself by the sheer act of repeating it, and then people can bring in all kinds of biological and evolutionary arguments to solidify it. There's there's parts of that, but that doesn't mean that it can't be a different story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the the when boys are different from each other, they're not just different in personality; they're also different in terms of how they have you know, related one has three sisters and has a very different experience of what it means to relate to the sisters or three different brothers for that matter. And mm-hmm. they have a different relation to gender attraction, boundaries, closeness, expressiveness, mm. all of these things. It's not just mm. consent. It's the, the, entire expressiveness of where does that fit You know, when we talk about food, we understand that food fits into a larger context. We don't just talk Mm. food. Food comes with the table and the people who are at the table and where the food is cultivated and who is working that land and how it arrives to us. We talk about an ecosystem. Mm. But when we talk about sexuality, it's such a particularism. It's taken out of context completely. And that Mm. is what a good educational approach to me brings is that it puts sexuality in a larger context, cultural, political, economic, familial, interpersonal, physical context.
0: That's mm. so important and and makes sense. I mean, I, I imagine for people listening at home, the light bulbs and alarm bells are going off because they're going, yes, of course, oh my goodness. And, and it's really true. I think about you know, the lie of the raging hormones and the, and the lie of, uh, you know, what a good or a bad girl is. And, and I, and think about what the difference would be if from a young age, you were taught to trust your instincts about people. I like it when I get a hug from that person. I don't like the way it feels when this person hugs me. It would, it would make us all feel so much more permission to own our experiences. And it, you know, it's one example, and i i, I got a little bit, I got us on a little bit of a tangent there because I got excited. Um, but it's one example of what the kinds of study that you do can open. To your point, we can take what we've long believed to be a topic, and we can realize it's an ecosystem. And and your study, which began, you know, studying kids when you were a teenager, mm. that led you to university and, you know, to your career, the thing I always wonder is, what is it like, because I want to talk so much more about, uh, you know, the work and relationships and myths, but I would be remiss to ask you, what is it like for you as a woman with your level of expertise and understanding about relationships, you know, when when you eventually met your husband to decide to enter into one, you know, let alone with an American who grew up with those American myths um, and American relationship expectations. What, what was that moment for you, for you? And and how did you say, you know, that's the person whose stuff I want to deal with as I'm an expert in relationship stuff? I wasn't yet, <laughs> it's been a long time. But, <laughs> you know, it's a
1: very interesting thing that I when I met my partner, who we are together, you know, 35 plus years, he had never been abroad. And I have traveled my whole life. I speak multiple languages. He speaks many, he says, but they're visual languages and sensual languages and, you know, and auditory languages. But no, he speaks English. And so it was such an unusual thing. Like, but Mm -hmm. I knew he had traveled inside and knew he was artistic. Mm. He was curious. He was a reader and that he just, the circumstances of his life and the losses he experienced made it so that he had not had a chance to travel, but he was Mm. a traveler. And that distinction is very important. I've seen people who have gone abroad a lot, but they're not travelers.
0: Mm. Curious
1: people who want to really enter into the worlds of others. And when we met, I began to to confide in him in ways that I had never done before. I never had opened up like that to anybody. I was very private mm. and he just sat and he had a way of listening that it does with everybody, not just with me. And I just felt like, wow, this is a person with whom I a, feel very safe and B, I can really travel. So I can experience Mm. security and adventure, which are the two poles and the two polarities in life that I have often explored in mating in captivity or in my my work. So he really, until today, I think that um, I would say that the the connection between the stability, the safety, the security, and also the the exploration, the curiosity, the, the traveler's mind, Um, is what I see in him and what I think we have.
0: That's so beautiful. And it is, it's a perfect way to tee up, you know, your first book. Mating in Captivity really kind of blew the lid off of how to have a a real, whole and complete relationship, I, I think. Because when you got specific in that book about how we function and and how we function within society and relationships and how our brains work in relationships. And you talk about that polarity that you have to figure out how to balance the desire for mystery and experience and newness with the desire for safety and security and trust, and that you can experience those things with the same person if you're really being honest and they're really being honest. And and I find, you know, both the book and your, your TED talk where you explain a lot of this to be so helpful and illuminating. And I, I wonder when you think about truths and myths about relationships, what would you share with you know, the folks listening at home who maybe haven't read the book yet, mm. um, but who want to know more. How, how do you begin to w- welcome people into this awareness and this work?
1: I just this week wrote a blog actually about those myths. And uh, mating came out quite a while ago, but mm-hmm. it seems to address some tendencies that actually have not abided. You know, the notion that I have 10 years of life at this point uh, that we call a kind of a moratorium period. People are committing 10 years later than they used to. And during that time, I have ample choice in the West, we're talking now, where I can have apps with loads of people. And then one moment, somebody is going to capture my attention, my imagination, and that person is going to make me you know, so focused that I'm going to delete my apps and I'm going to completely be immersed. And this person is going to become my soulmate. And it is a destiny model of relationships that it was mm-hmm. meant to be. It came from the heavens and the destiny model stands in contrast with the growth model. You know, Mm. I never thought of my partner as a soulmate. I thought of the person with whom I would love, I could see living a life with this person and growing together and exploring things together and, you know, dealing with the, the issues of life together. That's a very different notion than the soulmate model. I think soulmate used to be God. And in our secularized individualistic society, we have turned people into soulmates to, with whom we expect what we used to look for in the realm of the divine. That's Robert Johnson's um, point, And I very much agree with that. We want transcendence and mystery and awe and wholeness and all of that with one person. And we really too much of the time want one person to give us what an entire community should provide. Mm. We cannot have one person attend to all our needs. And the more we go into a nuclear model and the more we go into a soulmate model, and the more we are asking this one person to satisfy a host of contradictory needs. And it really is a burden on a relationship. It crushes us. We have never had so many expectations of one party of two.
0: So what would you say is the most common issue or or problem that people bring to you when they come to therapy?
1: There isn't a, look, the majority will say that it is a crisis of communication, but a crisis of communication can mean, you know, there is trauma that is uh, unresolved and that lives in the Mm. center of our relationship that makes one of us continuously feel abandoned or one of us continuously feel attacked or one of us continuously run away because every fight could be the end of the relationship. So communication is a a, a code word for how we deal with power and control, with care and closeness, with trust, with recognition, Mm. and with respect. I would say that it's those issues underneath the label, you know, we're having a communication crisis. We fight too much. We fight viciously. We don't resolve anything. Of course, a lot of people come to me with all kinds of challenges around sexuality and maintaining an erotic charge in their relationship, an erotic Mm -hmm. dimension, feeling flat, feeling that they haven't connected, that they don't see each other, that they haven't made love to each other in years. That Mm -hmm. was the origin of what mating in captivity wrote about was what is the difference between love and desire? Why does good sex fade even in couples who love each other as much as ever? Why does parenthood deliver such a fatal erotic blow? Like what happens Mm -hmm. to desire that is so central for so many people at the beginning and how do we sustain it? So Mm -hmm. that is the work of mating and it is still a primary issue that people bring to me in, in therapy it's hard to say, you know, when you've done work for 40 years, you, you don't yeah. think anymore that there is, a, but, but, you know, more and more, I see couples primarily. I, I like, I do mm-hmm. relationship therapy. I'm, I'm, it's an, it's one aspect of therapy, but there's so many other things people can work on. So mm-hmm. I deal with how people's relationship to themselves and to each other interact with each other back and forth. That mm-hmm. is an essential part of what I work on.
0: I love that. It it, it gives me, um, I'm almost visualizing a, a relationship as a, as a body.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, when you think about keeping a body healthy, making sure all of its systems are working, because if, if one system falls off, then the body begins to fall apart. And I, It's not lost on me that we often refer to good relationships as healthy. How healthy is your relationship? Um, Do you have a healthy sex life? You know, it it gets applied to a lot. So I'm I'm curious, do you ever view relationships through that lens? And and if you do, what would you say makes a romantic relationship healthy?
1: So I don't use the healthy metaphor Mm. as much. What what do you prefer? Meaningful, Mm. nourishing. Mm. feeling, creative. Healthy can be very puritanical. Healthy according to who, to what. When people say Mm. a healthy sex life, they want to know about frequency and maybe they want to know about performance. And, you know, frequency doesn't tell me anything about the quality of the experience, Mm. I mean, women for sure have done it for a century and felt nothing. So what are we talking about? Healthy, you know, we want to measure. I'm not actually talking much about stuff we can measure. I'm I'm much more phenomenological than that. So it's really, does your relationship give you a feeling that you're not alone? It's more existential. Mm. Do you feel that you are connected to people for whom you matter? Do you experience joy? Do you feel that people are there to care for you, to give you, that they, they seek you out, and you vice versa? You know what is the quality of your connection?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you feel dignified in your relationship or do you feel silenced?
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: you kind of accept things just because you don't want to rattle or because you don't want to incur wrath. You know, how safe do you feel and how dignified and seen and respected and attended to? It's those kinds of things that I'm much more interested in. Mm-hmm. I don't know in what category you put them, but, you know, how free do you feel in your relationship rather than just how safe? You know, mm-hmm. it, we know about the how safe, but also how free, how much can you do things that the other person says, go and have a great time? Mm mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, go do your thing. I'm here for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I'm interested in that dimension. That doesn't mean that it's all, you know, there's more than what I do. Mm. You know, th- that's the way I do my reading, if you want. Yes.
0: Well, and I love it because it, it does, it encourages us to get past a checklist, past the, we have a date night every Friday and we have sex three times a week and we, we, we whatever it is that you go, there it is, we're doing it. And it's like, right, but how do you feel? Right. So I'm
1: going, I don't spend much time with the doing. I spend time with the experience of the doing. Exactly. So you travel, how was the trip? You know, you went out, you had date night. How was the date night? I don't Mm -hmm. care if you went just on a, did you experience it in a way that felt fulfilling, nourishing, enjoying that you want Mm -hmm. to repeat it? What's the quality of the things you do? Not just the fact that you do it.
0: Exactly. Does it feel... The word that I think about a lot, when I, when I feel like everything's really working, I, it, to me, it feels sparkly. Sparkly, yeah.
1: Radiant is my word.
0: And I, I think it can really... The questions that you ask and, and the, you know, the research that you've done that you offer to people through your work can really lead us to ask better questions, to then be in better relationship and one of the things I find really fascinating is, you know, you've, you've given people these wonderful tools and then you decided to explore the really, you know, taboo topic that no one wants to admit, you know, they've either experienced or, or, you know, had thrown at them or or however you might describe it, but you decided to look into infidelity with the state of affairs you said, what do these things mean? What, is it, what does it signal when this happens in a relationship? And I'm so curious, uh, you know, after teaching people how to mate in captivity, what made you say, now we're going to look at the thing no one wants to talk about? Because if one
1: book was looking, Mating in Captivity looked at the challenges of desire inside the relationship. And the yeah. state of affairs basically tracks what happens to desire when it goes looking elsewhere.
0: Mm.
1: And I have a knack for taking subjects that are sometimes controversial. Mating captivity was very controversial at the time, too, mm. because it really said that our emotional needs and our sexual needs or our erotic needs are not always aligned, they're not always one and the same. Mm. And that at the time was very controversial. So And the reason I go to this topic is not because I'm a provocateur, but it's because I find that challenging topics can sometimes make us very quick and judgmental and black Mm -hmm. and white, rather than really staying with the discomfort of figuring out what is this really about? What is Mm -hmm. played out here? What goes on? And, you know, I started to ask audiences, have you been affected by the experience of infidelity in your life? Either because Mm. you are the child of a parent who was unfaithful or yourself, the offspring of an illicit love or one Mm. of the three protagonists in an infidelity plot or the best friend, et cetera. And basically 80% of the people will raise their hand. You know, this is not something that happens to a few people out there. So then I said, We need something that embraces the complexity of this experience. And that is more helpful to the dozens of people that walk into my office gutted by this experience. And it's not going to be black and white and victim and perpetrator and just one story. It's so many, many different stories that tell the experience of infidelity. And Mm. from there, I thought the best way I can talk about all these subjects, maybe beyond writing is also to let people hear what happens in my office Mm. and to put a mic to couples who are not my patients and never will be, but who apply to be on the podcast, where should we begin? Mm. And to let you hear, because if there is a taboo, it is to know the truth of what really goes on in other people's relationships. Nobody knows. And these Mm -hmm. days, even less. Couples are isolated and they are, you know, parading on social, only the good stuff. And Mm. your best friends come and tell you that they're breaking up and you never saw it coming. Mm. So I thought that I want to open. You know, you were you told me you were in Italy. You know, I remember being in Italy at that moment and seeing the small streets. And I thought, God, in those villages, everybody knows what's happening in the neighbor's house. (laughs) But in the cities, you don't know your neighbor at all. You know nothing about what's happening. And you think that what's happening to you is just you.
0: Mm.
1: Only your relationship is struggling with these things. And that's when I thought, I'm going to do a podcast where I'm going to play the conversations. What you say, what are the conversations? What are the questions people are dying to ask each other? Mm. How do I facilitate those difficult conversations that happen around intimacy sexuality infidelity
0: Mm.
1: um, trauma in the relationship and that became where should we begin which is we're now recording season five and um, um and then from there I thought well stories is my is kind of a theme of my life I believe in as that our relationships, our stories, the way we tell our life is a story, but stories also bind us and stories connect us. I want to create a game of Mm. stories. In the middle of the pandemic, I needed a happy project. And I said, Mm -hmm. I am going to create another way for people to ask the questions, to tell the stories. But this time I'm going to put it in the version of play rather than therapy Mm. because not everybody comes to therapy or needs to be in therapy. But play is the permission, the frame that one gets to tell the stories that one doesn't usually tell. And that's when I created, where should we begin the game of stories? And that's what brings me to today.
0: (laughs) I love that so much. And I think about it, you know, it sparks a thought that relates to what we were discussing in the beginning, what it is to be as so many people really are, but don't talk about and certainly don't post on their social media so many people are in one version or another children of trauma and children of trauma need to play. Mm -hmm. Our inner children still want those free. And as you mentioned, you know, naive or, or innocent experiences. And I love that you created a game because as you said, there are so many things we don't talk about and so many things we hide and back when Mating in Captivity came out, it's so funny to me that it was controversial. I'm like, this is the most clear and basic information that we we could need. But okay, you you forget kind of where we've come from, um, or at least I, I do sometimes. And I think whether it was that book or when State of Affairs came out, you do have a way of bringing people into the most important conversation, but it's one that they're scared to have. So yes. people sometimes get scared when they... Are met with your work. They go, I don't know what's going to happen to me if I go there, and um, and that was one of the things I really loved about the podcast. When Where Should We Begin came out, I sent links of it to everyone I know, and there were people who said, Yeah, no, I get that you're you're into this. You really like research. This feels. I don't know if I want to listen to people's problems. And I just said, That isn't what it is. What it is is it's a window inside and rather than the ways we normally look through windows in very produced television or films where someone has created the perfect scene to make you feel away this is completely unknown and unexpected and you will listen to people experience something and and you will expect them to get angry someone's going to storm out slam the door and that's not what happens it i really looked at it as a real life opportunity to learn new ways to communicate. And the way that you take these couples through these sessions is just, it's fascinating because you make observations about them that clearly no one else has because they haven't gotten this honest with other people. And I I really would love to know, because I'm sure there's people wondering at home, you mentioned that people apply to be on it, that these are not your patients, Mm -hmm. but for the recording of these Podcasts, they come in for sessions with you. So how does that work? How do how do people apply? And how do you then guide them through a process? And then how does that process wind up being an episode? Great. This is like the behind the stage show. Yeah. I'm like, tell me how it all works. That's there. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: for example, for season five, you see, at this point, contrary to the first season, everybody who's applying has already listened. Yeah, Or at least one partner in the relationship has listened. I put a post on social. I say we are recruiting. We are accepting applications. We get thousands. Mm. I mean, out of we need 10 out of a few thousands that we have currently have for this new season. So we are literally currently accepting applications. Wow. And they go, and my, my producer, Jessie Baker, uh, with whom I've worked for the entire duration, she does the screening. She calls them she Mm. listens, she speaks with them. And then it is, is this a story we haven't told? Mm. Can I help them in a one-time three-hour session? Or is this something that needs more than what I can offer? Uh, Are both people really comfortable being on a podcast? And because it Mm. will be heard by others, even though we take out all identifying information. Mm. Uh, Does it... Does it tell stories that need to be told? That means that it's stories where, you know, the more you will listen to these people, you will actually see yourself and themes of our life and of our relationship life that we haven't yet addressed. Mm. And is it inclusive also? Does it tell the breadth of stories, you know, of all kinds of relationships, all kinds of ages, backgrounds, relational configurations, etc.? And um, And that's how they get chosen. And then they meet usually they used to meet in my office and we did an mm. entire season not of where should we begin but of how is work my other podcast which does the same but within the work context also pairs that i recorded on zoom remote uh and i did do one season of where should we begin during the, during the pandemic that was couples in lockdown so i went mm. to lagos nigeria sicily germany New York and really worked with couples who were in lockdown, I felt like this is, I have the thing ready to go and look at how does this experience affect our relationship and how does our relationship affect our experience of the confinement and the lockdown? They're, they're powerful episodes that that happened in the in the middle of April 2020. So it was just all happening. And um, This week I interviewed and did a session with a a young couple. I have been very interested in younger couples for this season Mm -hmm. Um, and questions of queerness in relationship, questions of conflict, um, questions of when you're young, you haven't, you're still much more connected to the relationship that your parents had. Mm -hmm. and. And you haven't yet differentiated that this was their relationship and you're going to have something different. You're still Mm. wondering where, how similar am I to my parents? How different am I to my parents? And how much if I do this, it's going to put me right into the relationship my parents had and that's what I didn't want. Mm. So I'm very much exploring that. I'm going to explore friendships too. I would love Mm. to have couples of friends on the podcast. Um, you know, and maybe a parent with an adult child. I, I, maybe, I may expand a little bit, but basically mm. that's the process. Then you come in, we have a three-hour session, then we edit it, and then I'm sitting with the producer, we listen, and mm. we track. And the tracking is my thoughts, why mm. I did what I did, what I wished I had done that I didn't do, how could I miss this, how do I understand what goes on, it's a, it's my narration of my experience of the session.
0: Mm, incredible. And I, I'm so excited at the thought that you'll add other kinds of relationships. and And I think it's because listening to it really gives a perspective on, in unique ways, obviously, in each person's story, but the foundational elements of relationships. And I think back to you saying that, you know, your first book was controversial, so much of our understanding of of the foundational elements of relationships has changed since you began your work, and especially since you began publishing your work and and letting all of us in on it. And while I can't, you know, read from the book to everyone right now, what I can do is we can pull a card. Oh, yes. (laughs) So this, you know, I'm saying it as though people can, can see it, but so you know at home I've got the box where should we begin the game of stories in front of me so how how shall we begin (laughs) so when you play the full there's two ways to play
1: you know the casual version and the committed version meaning the full Mm -hmm. game and then just really playing with the prompts themselves so the prompts are not just questions they really invite stories right so Actually, it would be an interesting question for you. You know, there is a prompt of the story and then there is a frame card. So the story can say, I would quit my job if you'd pay me too. And the frame would could say from your teenage point of view or share it from your most irrational fear or the thing you would never tell your mother. So Hmm. that you never tell twice the same story because the frame takes you in a very different direction. I could ask you that question. I would quit my job because you're so identified with what you do. Like if you didn't do this, (laughs) what would you do? And therefore, what would your life be?
0: Mm. Mm. That's interesting. If If I didn't do this, what would I do? I realized that because I began my career as an actor, you know, my, the career that requires a public life, anyhow, people ask me, uh, you know, and they used to ask me, if you didn't, if you didn't do this, what would you do? And I was a journalism student in college. And I always said, I would probably be a journalist. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, you know, this modern era, technology powered era we live in has allowed me to do that with this podcast. With this show, I can tell stories and be curious. I can write prep docs for interviews. I I can use all of myself here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would always answer was when I was young, I I really wanted to be a heart surgeon. That was my first career plan. And my new show, which will come out in January, I happened to play a heart surgeon on the show. Oh oh my God. (laughs) So so weirdly, everything has come full circle, but it revolves around storytelling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's given me the sort of 30,000 foot overview to realize that there are many things I can do and will do, but they will always revolve around telling people's stories. And and you said it about your your parents, what you learned from them, that if you know your name, you ask other people their names. That's it for me. Mm-hmm. The more I learn people's stories, I have permission to really get true with my own. And the more that I get, into a deeply aware place with myself, the more I want to be deeply aware of and understand other people. So it's this really beautiful kind of symbiotic thing. It it feels sparkly. It it feels brilliant.
1: Here are a few stories, story questions for you. I'm just going to read a few and you can say, stop. A rule I secretly love to break.
0: I am really in this moment in time, you know, over this last year, especially trying to get into a good relationship with time. Because as an actor, every day you go to work at the time someone tells you to, Mm -hmm. and you go home whenever you go home and you don't know when that's going to be. And someone else tells you when you have to come back the next day. Mm -hmm. So I've never had control of my own time. And, and now being in this year where we've mostly been at home, I've been trying to get into a relationship with this this idea of a routine. Mm -hmm. And I keep setting bedtimes for myself so that I can wake up at the time I want to wake up. And I break my bedtime rule all of the time. And I can tell that my inner teenager, who was very type A and regimented and did everything my parents told me to do, loves breaking a parental rule. I can feel her, this little rebel in me. And I'm like, oh man, I'm going to have to really battle with with my inner teen to go to bed at 10.30 Mm because she doesn't want to. She wants to stay up till one in the morning and tinker and read things and watch random shows. And I have to sort of parent that part of myself.
1: So imagine that you get that question. It's a beautiful answer. A rule I secretly love to break. But the frame card says that you would never tell your mother or from your teenage point of view, or that's <laughs> awkward, or yeah. that is cringeworthy, or that so you get you see how the same yeah. question constantly shifts. I'm gonna yeah. read you a few and you can pick one for me. Okay. A phone number I need to delete. Mm. My most irrational fear. I never shared the whole story about the time. Mm. My guilty pleasure is. If I could change oh. something about the way I was raised, it would be, I'm most judgmental when it comes to mm. a dream I've never shared, a blind spot I have, mm. a mistake I'll never make again,
0: mm.
1: my most tenacious vice.
0: I'm very curious, as a as a person who is fascinated by your brain and the way you see the world, w- what is a dream you've never shared?
1: It's the never share that is a challenge because I, I think that I've shared m- many of my dreams, but mm. um, you know, the way you're talking about dreaming about being a heart surgeon and then finding yourself acting the, as a, a heart surgeon. Yeah. I, as I told you, I, I play acted my whole childhood and I had big dreams of being in the theater and mm. um I love the improvisational theater and Mm. uh, street theater and puppetry. And I did a lot of that for years. Um, Now I find myself back on stage, but very differently, but I am improvising. Even this interview with you is (laughs) improvisation. So I think when I talk about the dream that I haven't shared out loud, it would be, I would love to be a puppeteer again sometime.
0: I love that. (laughs) <laughs> and that makes sense you know this these games these these ways that we can you know we can play unexpectedly yes. puppets that play. is very unexpected and i love it for you
1: puppets you know i used to play puppets with my kids puppets they you can tell things through the puppets you can tell mm. through the game it it, it I, I i surprised myself in the answer it's not like i knew what i was going to say mm. yes i think that a puppet it's and when you see children look at puppets, it's like
0: magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it creates just enough distance from us that we feel permission to really let go.
1: That's it. That's the same with the card game.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. People
1: are playing it with friends. They're playing it with people they've never met. They're playing it yeah. with their partner. They, if they play with the family they take or with their colleagues, they take out the pink triangle cards because then it's mm-hmm. more safe for family and safe for work. Um, they play it in small groups or in large groups, but it's the same idea than the puppet. It Mm -hmm. gives you just enough distance. Every time I play, I leave with one story that just blew my mind. Like how did Mm -hmm. that, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. And, And there is, there's such a permission of discovery when there's a question. You know, for me, I don't love a blank page. I don't know where to begin. But if there's one question, I can really go for it. And it leads you to all of these places. One
1: of the things that keeps me up at night. Oh, for me? Yeah.
0: Oh, goodness. Um, honestly, the systems of injustice around the world keep me up at night. I stay up reading people's stories, reading through the news, yeah. looking at how we've gotten to a, a, this strange place where we discount human experience and we, we pretend that uh, Facebook posts and science are the same and and that we don't trust, you know, the stewards of the world. I I've, I genuinely want to understand it because I think that a refusal to meet facts also can be a refusal to acknowledge human experience. It gives you more permission to turn away when when someone is, you know, suffering or something is going wrong and and you could perhaps help. And so th- those things really, they, they keep me up late. A risk I took that changed my life. Mm. Quitting my last job. That was a big risk. That was a big, dangerous, scary, unstable risk, but I I had to. And it it did really change everything for me in the most wonderful way. And when you say that,
1: I'm not going to do it, but you know, I'm instantly drawn in. I want to ask Mm. more questions. I, you know, Mm. I'm, I'm, my curiosity is awakened. Yeah. Um, I get to see a whole different side of you. Mm. Uh, And that's what starts to happen when people play, where should we begin?
0: Yes. Oh, I love it. I just love it. You know, it's funny, I was going to ask you what um, what advice you would give for people in relationships, but I realized that the answer is that they should get the game and, and really play together. That's one thing. I mean, I would also, you know, it's interesting because I
1: give advice a lot, you know, I, in mm-hmm. the blog, in my newsletter, but I also, I am a person who thinks that, a lot of the good advice comes by asking the right questions. So Mm -hmm. I don't say to people, one, two, three, do this. Here are three steps for that. I say to people, I'm doing a a new series on the podcast that's basically me calling people who have sent in questions. Mm. And they're short. And I don't just say, do this. I say, you know, what about that? Have you considered this? What happens in this moment? Would you ever want to try such a thing like this? It's a. that's more the way that I honor people's intelligence rather yeah. than just establish myself as if I am an expert. I don't think I'm the only one. I think I think a lot about these things, but there isn't one way and there isn't one size fits all. And that goes to your, you know, Facebook and science isn't one and the same. Mm. It's the same in my, in, on my part of my work. My work mm-hmm. is to help you become more confident about your relationships but that's not by telling you do this and this and this. It's by telling you different things that can be done and helping you make a choice that you will feel confident about.
0: Mm. Well, and it strikes me that it's, you are giving people the tools to create their own progress in their relationships, in their lives. And obviously we're on, we're on this show we are we are in the container of the idea of being a work in progress mm-hmm. and you give people so many avenues you know you've paved these roads for them to traverse for their for their progress for their growth and i wonder what what for you esther feels like a work in progress in your life i think that what we're
1: talking about has been a work in progress. You know, I spent 30 plus years just working in my office as a therapist, which I still do, and teaching mm. and lecturing and training. But it was really clinical work. And, you know, a therapist, we don't talk about our work to others it's, in, it's really a confined space. And I thought I want to take this outside of the four walls. I want to democratize it. I want to make it free, accessible, inclusive, you know, reachable worldwide. But I don't want to simplify it to such an extent that it becomes the one, two, three steps. I want to maintain right. the depth, the levels, the complexity, the layers of what happens in the room. I had never spoken to people I couldn't see. <laughs> I've only spoken to people. I mean, I'm, I'm I was in the one profession that was the most technologically free, no mm-hmm. phones, no computer, no, nothing just face to face, you know, in relationship with each other. How do I translate that and take that outside of my office? And I, wow. you know um, and how do I help people cultivate relational intelligence almost like a public health campaign. And that's the project I'm on, the the work in progress. And for that, I talk, you know, I I read a lot. I talk to mentors, colleagues. I try to stay in touch. I think one of the most important things I've done in the last years, and that's how we met, is I I began to create a community life for Mm. me that is intergenerational. I don't just stay with people who are at my stage of life. I want to know all the things mm-hmm. and uh, that's my work in progress is to stay relevant
0: Well you do it beautifully and and you you know you enrich my life as a as a friend and you enrich the lives of so many people with with the way that you choose to do work in the world. so I thank you from from many vantage points and and I have so loved today as I'm sure our listeners have thank you for this
1: Thank you so much it's a pleasure.